Well, I want to give a, a major shout out to all of our team that has worked incredibly hard to make this possible, who worked uh, extra hours this weekend. Our team has been here since before 6 a.m. this morning to make it possible to have this service for all of you. And I want to thank you for your flexibility and your trust to kind of make this shift with us during this time. You know, the, the followers of Jesus across the centuries are well familiar and well acquainted with having to respond to global pandemics. From the very beginning of the history of the church, after Christ was resurrected and his followers began to spread across the Roman Empire, they dealt with plagues. And on most of the occasions when these plagues spread across the Roman Empire in the first and second century, the response of the leaders in Rome, the Caesars, the emperors, was to blame the Christians. Again and again, the Christians would be cited as the reason that the plague was spreading. And specifically in two instances, in 160 AD and in 250 AD, Christians were blamed for these spreads of plagues, the plagues that we would now know as things like smallpox and measles. And it was as if it wasn't already difficult enough for the followers of Jesus to be faithful in those days and in those times. You see, Caesars would have Christians tied to a stake, covered in oil and lit on fire as a torch for a party, or a a Christian would be brought into the uh, Colosseum and be fed to lions as sport and entertainment for the watching audiences. But in 250 AD, the emperor Decius was persecuting Christians and blaming them for the plague of Cyprian. However, there were two inconvenient facts that were at play in that specific plague. And the first one is this that Christians died from the plague like everybody else. And so if they were responsible for it, would it not make sense that they would be immune from it? But they weren't. They suffered just like everybody else. And then number two, maybe even more important, is that unlike everybody else, the Christians cared for the victims of the plague, including their pagan neighbors. And so in cities across the Roman Empire, when the plague would come into a city, people would flee to flee the plague and to protect themselves. But Christians would either remain in the city or they would run into the city towards the danger to care for the victims, including fellow followers of Jesus and including their pagan neighbors. And it was those acts that historian Rodney Stark lists as the primary catalyst for a radical change between 250 and 300 AD. Because of the actions of these Christians, Christianity shifted from being the persecuted faith in the empire to by 300 and just after to being the preferred faith in the empire as even the emperor Constantine became a follower of Jesus. Put simply, the worst of times brought out the best in us. And I believe the same thing could happen again today. The worst of times could bring out the best in us. And that's why, as I said earlier, I've set aside the message I was going to bring as part of our Signs and Wonders series. I'll bring that message next week. And I've written a special message entitled, A Crisis Response, Fear or Hope. 
Now, this message is a little bit difficult for me to give because it's far less polished than I typically am. I finished it just a few hours ago, and after getting a few hours of sleep, I'm here to share it with you. I'm excited for our Signs and Wonders series to continue next week, so please join us here online next week to pick up that series again. But today, I felt like something different needed to be said. And here's what I want to talk to you about. Here's our big idea. How we respond to crisis moments reveals our fear or our hope. How we respond to crisis moments reveals our fear and our hope. And I use the word our because this is not a message that I'm just telling you that you need to live. This is a message I'm sharing with you that I have been working to live for the past 12 years. You see, it was 12 years ago that I was in the middle of a crisis moment. I got hired for a job, and like some of you can relate, sometimes you get hired for a job and you discover that the job after the hire is very different than the job you learned about in the interview. And I learned that the situation I was stepping into was far more challenging and danger-ridden than I realized, that the stakes and the problems and the crises were much bigger than I realized. And over time, over months and then years, I began to be a person who responded with a tremendous amount of fear. I became a person who got hurt and wounded And as a result of my fear, I put up walls of cynicism and I began to respond and lead out of that. And it wasn't until someone who came to me and they said, Scott, where's the hope that I began to recognize my need for change? And it was in that season that God took me to a place in the Bible that I had overlooked again and again. He took me to the book of Numbers. And that's where I want us to turn today. Numbers is the fourth book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. If you're reading through the Bible this year and you're following it as it's written in order or in chronological order, two of the hardest books to get through are Leviticus because of all the laws and the numbers because of, well, all the numbers. But in the middle of one of those sections, God showed me a crisis moment in the lives of his people, and he showed me some profound lessons that I've been trying to put into practice for the last 12 years that I want to share with you today. And so today I want to share with you five lessons from a crisis moment. If you're following along, you can take notes. We're going to go to verse 1 of chapter 13, which says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. So he isn't sending the lowest of people. He's sending their best leaders, all their chiefs. And Moses sent these men, these 12 men, from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them who were heads of the people of Israel. Now go to verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. Whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not, be of good courage and bring some fruit of the land. The first lesson from this crisis moment is that God calls us to courageous hope in the midst of real challenges. God calls us not to anything else but courageous hope. 
And he doesn't call us to deny the challenges. He wants us to see them. And so for these people, these Israelites, these Hebrews that have come out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, have traveled to Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments, and are on their way to the Promised Land, God says, send some spies into the land so that you can see it for yourselves. Because for hundreds of years, they have been told about the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bring them into this land. And they were living on that promise. And and God said, no, I I don't want you to live on a promise. I want you to go see it for yourselves. Study it all. See it all. Learn all about it. And so in essence, what God is doing in in this charge is he's shifting them from a telescope to a magnifying glass. Don't trust the view from far away that somebody told you about. Go and see it and study it yourself, the good and the bad, the opportunities and the challenges. And it was in my own season of beginning to look at the real challenges that I was facing, that I was dealing with 12 years ago through a magnifying glass, that I became overwhelmed by fear and cynicism. And I began to focus on those fears and those problems, and I began to only speak about what was wrong and what was broken and what needed to change. And it was in that time that somebody asked me, Scott, where's the hope? And the hard part for me about hope is that when I heard that word, I thought of a picture like this. I thought hope was pretty puny. It wasn't very strong. I thought it was weak. And in that season, God began to teach me and show me that my view and definition of hope was not an accurate one. And I began to discover all the things that hope wasn't, that I had believed that it was. And I want to run through these with you, these 10 things that hope is not, that I had to learn the hard way. First, hope is not naive. So if you hear the word hope and go, oh, Scott, hope is great if you actually don't live in reality. But I do. No, no. Hope is not naive. Hope is not, number two, denial. So if you have hope, you're not naive of the circumstances and you're not denying the circumstances. Number three, hope is also not passivity. So if somebody has told you before, you know what? I'm just going to hope it gets better and do nothing. That is not hope. Hope number four is not avoidance. Hope isn't going, hey, you know what? I know that's wrong. I know that's bad. I know there's a problem there. I'm just going to avoid it and not do anything about it and hope it gets better. That is not hope. Number five, hope is not the easy path. If you're going to look at challenges, if you're going to look at problems, if you're going to live through crises and you're going to hold on to hope, that is certainly not the easy path. Because number six, hope is not comfortable. For you to hold in your hand the truth about what you're facing and hold on to hope at the same time, that is certainly uncomfortable. Number seven, hope is not cheap. If you're going to hold on to hope in the midst of a crisis or a challenge or different circumstances, it's going to cost you something. And sometimes what it's going to cost you is the view that other people have of you. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Hope is also not an emotion or a feeling. Hope isn't something we just do or hold to when we feel like it. Hope is not weakness. No, people who can hold on to hope in the face of circumstances, which leads them to do anything but hope, they aren't the weak. They are the strong. And finally, hope is not insignificant, as we'll see in our story today. You say, Scott, if hope is not those things, what is hope? Let me give you a biblical definition of hope, and it's on your handout if you got one of them from our website. 
Hope is a strong and confident expectation for something good that God will bring about in the future. Biblically speaking, when the Bible uses the word hope, this is what the Bible is talking about. A strong and confident expectation. Not a wish, not a hope and a prayer, but a strong and confident expectation. You believe it's going to happen. Why? Because God is going to bring something good about in the future. Hope is focused on the future and it's rooted in who God is. And because of it, it gives us this strong and confident expectation. Therefore, if you think that hope means that you have to deny what's happening around you and pretend it's not real, that is not hope. Because hope doesn't deny reality as we're going to see in the story. Biblical hope defies reality. It says, yes, all of those things are true. All of those things are real. All of those things are happening, but God, in the face of it, is going to bring something good. And if you are going to respond with courageous hope in the middle of your circumstances today, you are going to have to defy reality and say, yep, that's true now, but I believe and I am trusting and expecting and depending on a God who is going to do something new and good and better and greater in the future. The story continues in verse 21. So they, the spies, went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rahab near Lebo Hamath. If you're a praying person, pray for me. There's some hard words in this passage ahead. They went up in the Negeb and they came to Hebron. Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And the spies came to the valley of Eshkol, and they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and some figs. And they told him, him being Moses in verse 27, we came to the land which you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey, which is a proverbial phrase for the land is, is bountiful and abundant. It can produce good crops. And this is the fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak, their giants who are eight and nine feet tall. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites, they dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites, they dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Then the men who'd gone up with him, one of the other spies, said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land they spied out, saying, and this is their summary, the land through which we have gone to spy it out and all the people that we saw in it are of a great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. The second lesson from this crisis moment is that our temptation has always been to focus on the size of the problem rather than on the provision of God. This is not a new phenomenon that we're facing today. It goes all the way back to the beginning here in Numbers that we are tempted to focus on the size of our problem rather than focusing on the provision of God. 
What happens in this story is that they take all of their experiences, these spies, they take all the things they saw, the good and the bad, all the opportunities, all the difficulties, all the places they have advantages, all the places they have disadvantages, and they turn those pieces into a story, into a report that they give all of the people. Now, before you pass judgment on these spies for doing it, we do the exact same thing. We take all the things that we're experiencing, all the things that we're hearing, and we tell ourselves a story from it. We are story-making creatures as humans. It's how God designed us. So for example, this week, you saw things on the news, often from your preferred source of news. You saw things on social media that were filtered using an algorithm to show you people who agree with you. And then you talk to your friends, and from all of that, you made sense and you created a story to help you understand and interpret what's happening. And from that, you made a judgment. And many of us go through this process, and what it does is it tempts us to focus on the size of our problem rather than the provision of God. Let's look at the story in a specific way using the grapes. Now, I haven't been to the store in a few days, so I don't know if you can buy grapes in the Quad Cities. I'm not sure what they've restocked yet. But I can promise you, if there are grapes in stores, none of them are like the grapes in Numbers 13. If you have your Bible open still, you will see that in the Valley of Eshkol, they picked a cluster, one cluster of grapes, and it was so large that it took two men, one on either side of the pole, size of a pole, with, with the cluster hanging from the pole, to carry it back to Moses to show him how abundant the land was. And they saw that provision of God. And they chose not to focus on the provision of God, but instead of focusing on the size of God's provision, they said what they're the size of their enemies, how tall they were, how big they were. And they told a story that was primarily about the size of their enemies, not a story about the size of their God and the size of his provision. So my question for you is, what kind of story are you telling today? What kind of story are you telling based on your experience, based upon what you see? And is your story based on the provision of God or is it based on the size of your problems? I can tell you, 12 years ago, for me, I was in a season where my story was primarily about the size of my problems. And in that season, I stumbled on an article one day when I was scrolling the internet. And in that story, I was challenged in a profound way. And so I took an image that was in that story. It was a picture to my graphic designer at the time, a guy named Mike. And Mike still designs all of the slides that you see in this message and all of our messages. He's been working with me for 14 years. I said, Mike, can you create some artwork for this with me that will help me to, to remember this and keep it in front of me? And he created some artwork back then, and I asked him this week to update it in advance of this message. And the artwork he created had to do with these two knobs, a fear knob and a hope knob. Because it was in those days that I began to recognize that in my life, I had turned the volume of fear as loud as it could go. And fear was not only loud in me, but fear was loud through me. Because I was focused on the size of my problems. And when that person came to me and said, Scott, where's the hope? 
I began to feel like God was speaking to my heart, not in an audible way, but he was impressing upon me, Scott, are you going to be a voice of fear or are you going to be a voice of hope? In your life, are you going to turn the fear knob up or are you going to turn the hope knob up? And it was in those days that I made a commitment that I am still striving to follow 12 years later that I want to be a voice of hope. I not only want to have God's hope loud in me, I want to have God's hope loud through me. And you say, Scott, how do I know if I'm being a voice of hope or if I'm being a voice of fear? How do I know if fear is loud in me or if hope is loud in me? Well, when you look at your life and when you listen to your life, do you hear a focus on the size of the problem or do you hear a focus on the provision of God? Are people always hearing from you about what's wrong and what's broken and what's not working and what's not good and the latest crisis? Or do they hear from you about what God is doing, about how God is working? Do they hear about the solutions that God is providing? And in this day, I want to encourage you to ask yourself the question, what am I focusing on? I'm not saying that you ignore the problem. I'm not saying that you deny reality. What I am saying is that what you focus on will determine where you go. And so are you going to focus on the problem? Or are you going to focus on the solution and the provision that God is bringing? Third lesson we learn from this crisis moment is that this hope, our hope in God, what it does is it turns our difficulties into opportunities. When we choose to focus on the provision of God and the character of God and he builds a strong and confident expectation in him and the good he's going to bring, what that does is it turns what we saw as difficulties into opportunities. In the passage, there's a a, a spy named Caleb. And it says that Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy the land for we are well able to overcome it. And later on in chapter 14, It says, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who'd spy out the land, they tore their clothes, which was a sign of grief and angst. And it says that they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out, it's an exceedingly good land. God delivered on his promises. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So what you have here is you have 12 spies who go in the land and 10 of them come back talking about the size of the people, the size of the problem and why they can't do it. And Joshua and Caleb come back and they talk about how good God has been, how he's kept his promises, how their protection is removed. God is with us and we should not be afraid. We should be courageous. Joshua and Caleb saw what the other 10 saw, but they saw it differently. And the same thing's happening today. You have friends, you have family who are going through the exact same circumstances and they are seeing it differently. They are responding differently. They are believing things about it differently. Some are responding with fear. Some are responding with hope. 
And those who are responding with hope are experiencing the power of hope that Kevin Gerald describes here. He says hope is an unrelenting determination to not allow the hardships of life to downsize the bigness of God. This is why if you are going to choose to join me in this hope revolution, in the midst of this crisis, you are going to have to exert and express an unrelenting determination, not weakness, not passivity, not avoidance, not comfort, not the easy path, an unrelenting determination to not allow the hardships of life, the real challenges we face to downsize or shrink the bigness of God. That's why hope doesn't require less of us. It demands the most of us. And when I think about hope, one of the people this week who came to mind for me is my friend, Nona Rowland. I met Nona about 10 years ago. She attended the church I was involved with in Phoenix. And in the summer of 2015, Nona was surprisingly diagnosed with cancer. It was one of those moments that she just didn't see coming. And she got her diagnosis in the middle of the week. And she began to think, do I want to go to church on Sunday? Of course, she wanted to be at church to experience God's presence. But did she want to ask questions? Did she want to deal with people? And did she want to hear what was being talked about? Because she knew we were getting ready to start a series at the church at the time called The Warrior. And it was a, a series intentionally targeted at men. And we were bringing in the particular week in the series that she was thinking about. We were bringing in a guest speaker who was a former NFL player named Ron Wolfley, who was on the radio and called Cardinals games. And she's like, I'm not a man. I'm not the whole warrior thing. I don't really like football. Do I want to come? And she ended up coming begrudgingly that day. And in the room, she kind of sat over here. Where my friend Ron spoke. And Ron's an incredible guy. Ron shared about how he had memorized 40 or 50 verses of the Bible that he would recite on the way into work every day. And he spoke for 20 to 30 minutes that day and never once used his Bible in his hand, but he recited every verse he mentioned from memory. It was powerful. He challenged us to pick up our sword, the Bible, and to charge towards our fear. And Nona heard that message that day and it stirred something in her soul. So on the way home, she stopped and got stacks of index cards. And as she got home, she opened up her Bible she opened up her concordance, opened up her computer, and began searching for verses that spoke to the challenges she was facing. And she made stack after stack of verse cards that she would carry in a Ziploc bag to her chemotherapy treatments. And while she sat in the chair with the chemo feeding through an IV, she would flip through those verses and recite those scriptures. And what happened day after day and treatment after treatment is that God began to build a courageous hope and my friend Nona. God began to write his word on her heart. And she began to face cancer, not with fear, but with hope and courage. This is a picture we took on my very last Sunday in Phoenix. Her hair had been all lost, and now it was growing back. And that day, her cancer was in remission. And as I thought about Nona and her story, the question that it raised for me is, what opportunity is God opening up for you during this difficulty? What is God making possible in the midst of this difficulty that, like Nona, you didn't see coming? 
and what's possible now that's never been possible before. Maybe for you, you've been saying, you know what, I need to slow down and really be more intentional about spending time with God. Well, guess what? You now have your opportunity. Maybe you've been saying, you know what, my family needs to spend more time together and we're too busy. Well, guess what? Some of you instantly became homeschool families this week. You now have that time. Maybe you've been saying, you know what, I feel there's some things I need to deal with. And now you're being forced to deal with them. What opportunity is God making possible now? And how can you see that there are not just difficulties today, there are opportunities. And there are things that were never possible before that are now possible today, and you don't want to miss them. Well, here's how the story comes to an end in verse 28. God speaks to Moses, and he says to speak to the people, Say to them, Moses, as I live, declares the Lord, what you've said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who've grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore I would make you dwell, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. This story ends in a very compelling way because it teaches us this principle that our lack of hope and courage has consequences. It's an incredibly sober moment as this sinks in. That not only the 10 spies, but the hundreds of thousands and millions of people who believed their bad report, God said, all of you are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. You will die and none of you will enter the promised land. Everyone over the age of 20 who sided with that report, who believed that report, who went along with that report, he says, none of you are going to see the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb. And you might say, Scott, that sounds incredibly harsh. It is. Because we like to believe in a world where there are no consequences, that we can get out of the consequences of our decisions and where it doesn't matter what we do. But it does. What we do right now matters. And if we choose to respond without courage and without hope, there will be consequences. Do you know what the wealthiest real estate is in the world? It's not in Manhattan. It's not in Hollywood. It's not in London. It's not in Dubai. It's in graveyards. Graveyards, where untapped potential is permanently buried. Unused gifts waste away. Ideas, solutions, imagination never implemented and turned into reality. Several years ago, Bronnie Ware, a nurse who worked in a hospice work, in Australia and New Zealand, wrote a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And what she said is this, the number one regret of her thousands of dying patients was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. When her patients were literally sitting there dying in her presence, what they said is that I made so many of my decisions not based upon what I knew I should do, what I was called to do, what even God wanted me to do. I made so many of my decisions in my life based upon what others expected of me. 
And so friends, the question I'm bringing to you today is this, is your lack of hope and courage today rooted in a fear of others' opinion? Right now, in the crisis we're facing, are you responding in the way that you believe you should respond? Are you responding in the way that God's calling you to respond? Are you responding in the way that you feel like is true to real biblical hope? Or are you responding in a way that will minimize the criticism and negative reactions of other people? Even this week, I will tell you that I had to listen and apply my own sermon. Because we had to make a decision. Do we have church? Do we do it business as usual? Do we shrink down our plans? Do we move things online? Because I knew no matter what decision we made, we were going to get criticized. If you don't want to get criticized, do nothing, change nothing, lead nothing. That's, that's the, the reality. When everybody like you, go sell ice cream. Don't lead anything. And so many of us today, my belief is we're gauging the opinions of others before we decide what to do. And if the voice of other people and your fear of their opinion is louder than the voice of God in your life, you are not going to live with hope and courage. You're going to live driven by fear. And I would hate for you to get to the end of your life whenever that moment comes and go, man, I wish I would have lived true to who God called me to be, not who people expected me to be. And this is why this moment is a gift for us, because the fifth lesson is this. Christ exposes the truth. If nothing else, what crisis does is it exposes the truth. Right now, we are seeing so many things clearly that we couldn't see before. And if nothing else, the crisis we're in today, it's going to expose things for what they really are. All week long, I've seen people post on social media and with pictures and stories and anecdotes, they said the same three words over and over again. People are crazy. Even after one of our services, somebody who attends our church is, was literally in line at Costco waiting to get in, watching the service, and they sent me a picture of the line. They said, people are crazy. But people didn't just all of a sudden become crazy on Wednesday. People didn't just all of a sudden become fear-driven and panic-driven. Those things have been in them all along, and it took crisis to expose the truth. Because crisis exposes where we've put our hope. And when your world begins to shake during a crisis, you turn to, without thinking about it, what you hope in. And that's why what the writer of Hebrews says is so true. That what can be shaken will be shaken, so that what cannot be shaken will remain Friends, what crisis does is it exposes our idols. Say, Scott, what's an idol? Well, an idol is simply anything you look to for what only God can give. And many of us are discovering in this crisis the things that we were looking to other than God for what only God can truly give. And I'll go first. My idol, so often, is control. I like being in control. And a friend of mine who knows this sent me a quote this week from Barbara Brown Taylor, who said, we do not lose control of our lives. What we lose is the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. As I thought about how out of control at times I felt this week, I thought of a moment in the past where I felt out of control. 
It was the week of August 10th, 2014, the week our twins were born. It's my son Maxwell on the left there. He was born with a hole in his lung, and I couldn't hold him for the first five days he was born. He was in what my wife and I called the space pod and the NICU in the hospital. We're praying that his lung would reinflate so that he could breathe on his own and get off of the machine. We prayed that he would eat enough that we could feed him. My daughter on the right there, my friend Jason, my pastor at the time, has his hand over her. He's 6'3", so it's a big hand, but still, she was really little. And within a couple days of her being born, she was next door to her brother. Because in the middle of the night, while I'm sleeping next to my son, the doctor wakes me up at 12.15 and says, Mr. Savage, your daughter's not breathing. She's got a fever. We're going to have to tube her. And we're not coming to ask your permission. We're just coming to tell you and inform you. We thought you'd want to know. And I felt completely out of control in those days. And it was in those days that I learned what I was reminded even this week, that control is an idol and an illusion. And I was looking to it for what only God could give. So what are the illusions and the idols that this crisis is exposing in you? And how can you thank God for this crisis? Because he's revealing the truth that you need to see. Jesus himself said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But the truth is, many of us would rather live in bondage than freedom. We'd rather live in the illusion than in truth. And I wish Jesus would have kept going on that rant about truth. Because I think if he did, he would have said, the truth may set you free, it just may make you miserable first. And you may discover things in this crisis that you don't want to see because how we respond to crisis moments reveals our fear or our hope. So if you have that handout out, there's some next steps I want to direct you to to take action this week based upon what we've talked about. And the first one is this. I want to encourage you to take inventory of your life this week. You may be gifted this week with silence, solitude, and stillness. Don't waste it. Take the opportunity to look in the mirror at your own life, to examine the things that are coming up in your heart, to take inventory of where you've put your hope and your trust, the idols that may be present, the illusions that you're losing. Take inventory this week and go, what is actually there? Number two, examine the true state of your relationship with God. And is it possible that you've been looking to things other than God for what only God can give? Is it possible that God's allowing this crisis in our life for all of us to return to him? Maybe even today you're watching this message and this service because it was only available online and somebody told you about it and you haven't been to church in a really long time. And maybe what God is doing is he's using this crisis to draw you back to him, to show you maybe the shallowness of your relationship with him and he's calling you deeper. Number three, I want to challenge you to commit to turn the hope knob every day this week. So whenever you get a breaking news alert, whenever there's more news coming about what's ahead, whenever you read the newest meme or post of your friends online, I want to encourage you to choose to turn the hope knob with me. Not to deny reality, not to ignore the problems, not to stick your head in the sand, but to choose to respond with a strong and confident expectation that God will bring something good in the future in the face of what we see. In Romans 15, the Apostle Paul writes, May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. My prayer is that we would turn that hope knob because God's pouring hope into us. And as he pours hope into us, number four, I want to encourage you to look for opportunities to be a hope dealer this week. Now, we saw online this week that there's some people who are Purell dealers, who've bought up all the hand sanitizer. They're, they're, um, they're Charmin dealers. They bought up all the toilet paper. They're hoarding it, hoping to deal at an extra price. Well, what if you went a different path and said, I'm not going to deal Purell. I'm not going to deal TP. I'm going to not deal fear. I'm going to deal hope. Say, Scott, how do I do that? Well, you know people who are in the front lines of this crisis. People in the medical profession. People who are first responders. People who are now moving from having someone to be able to take care of their kids to having their kids full time. What do they need? What would encourage them? And how can you be an answer to that need? Maybe you have some friends who are already just struggling to get through anxiety and depression. And now they're in an even worse place. And what if you said, hey, I'm going to text you every morning to make sure you get out of bed. Maybe you have a neighbor or a friend that you know doesn't have family and friends. Say, I'm going to check on you every day. Maybe those neighbors that you all drive past and wave at, you know, kindly. Maybe you said, hey, if you need me to go to the store or you run low on a prescription or you run into a problem, here's my number. You can reach out to me. Maybe to your friends, your kids and your friends, teachers who are now becoming online educators for the very first time. You said, hey, how could I help? What could I do? What if instead of running from the thing, you ran to it? Because like our ancestors of the faith, I believe the worst of times can bring out the best in us if we choose not to respond with fear, if we choose to respond with hope. Will you pray with me?